to preface the service. Until COVID, we always had the table with the elements there and our deacons would pass it out. But we've gone to these all-in-one uh, cups. But to help you out a little bit, you probably have already figured it out, but there's a little film of cellophane that you pull to get to the wafer and then the big tab to get to the juice. We hope it's still juice. But whatever it is, it's official. And we'll enjoy it. So keep that in mind, would you? Paul writes to the Corinthians and prefacing all of this, he admonishes the and exhorts the Corinthians to examine their lives before they come to the, the supper table of the Lord. And so now we're going to have a prayer before we begin our, our time of Lord's Supper, okay? So let's just bow for prayer. And we, in our hearts, will pray that the Lord will cleanse us and purify us in the way that pleases Him as we come together as believers to celebrate what the Lord has done for us. Father God in heaven, we know that the only thing that makes us clean is the blood of Jesus and we've come today, Lord, you know, to honor it and to celebrate, to rejoice over what Christ has done on the cross for us. Father, as you look upon us, I pray now that you'll Hear the pleadings from our hearts as we come in confession and repentance. Acknowledging sin and asking you to take it away, purify us, forgive us. Because we know that your word teaches us that if we are faithful and just to ask you for forgiveness, you'll forgive us. So Lord, in just a moment when we participate together in this Lord's Supper, we know that because we've prayed and asked for forgiveness and we have besought you in the best way we know how to come forth from this prayer into the time of Lord's Supper, that you have made us as, as pure as we could possibly be when we take of the elements here and we are reminded of what Christ has done for us. So Lord, bless this time. Glorify yourself in it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. It doesn't matter if you're a member of our church or not. If you are a born-again believer, of course, you are welcome to join us in this Lord's Supper. So then Paul wrote to the Corinthians and talked about how the Lord taught him about the Lord's Supper. 
You know, Paul spent those years in the Arabian desert. My seminary professor used to say he was attending the seminary of the Holy Ghost when he was in that desert in the wilderness for those years. And the Lord himself came even when Paul was in prison and spoke to Paul. Paul is qualified then to say this. For that which I received from the Lord, I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread and having given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Paul continues. Likewise, also the cup after having supped or suppered or after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you might drink it in remembrance of me. But Paul follows up with this next verse, which, which will be the last part that we look at today, briefly. For as often as you may eat this bread, this the bread, and may drink the cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord until that he should come. Christ said to his disciples in the Lord's Supper time, that night when he was betrayed, the Lord said, I'm not going to participate in this with you, not until we're together in the kingdom. The Lord himself, speaking of the kingdom and teaching his disciples more than once, about his second coming. And as much as we reflect upon the death of Christ on the cross and what he has done for us, he has, he has cleansed us from our unrighteousness. He has covered us with his righteousness. He died for me. His grave was my grave. His punishment was my punishment. His emergence from the tomb is, is my resurrection as well. Something that in the mind of God is already a reality, though I'm not there yet. Already a reality because of Christ. If he died on the cross... He suffered for others, not for himself. And I happen to be among those. And if he came forth from the grave, he came forth guaranteeing the resurrection of others, those who are his own. 
Again, here, Paul teaching the Corinthians includes in the service of the Lord's Supper the promise of the second coming of Christ. So as surely as we look back and reflect upon the gravity of what Christ did on the cross for us, we should also equally look forward to what Christ will do for us. He's coming again. There are so many of the promises of things that will happen that had never happened before in the history of mankind that are directly related to the second coming of Christ in the scriptures. Oh, for example, earthquakes in diverse places all across the world. I think I left my phone in the office. I have an earthquake detector on my phone. I have had to disable the notification because if I left it, it, it dings, and if it's on silent, it vibrates. And, and I'm either going crazy by the sound of the ding that just happens all the time, detecting or telling me that an earthquake has been detected in the world, bang, ding, 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 ding. And if I have it on silent, I'm scrambled eggs because the thing just shakes all the time. A reminder of how earthquake. Now, they couldn't have known that in the day when Christ prophesied. They didn't have cell phones and the nations of the world didn't have earthquake detectors and these things all, all put together. The buoys that are all across the oceans that are detecting suboceanic earthquakes. So it had to have been a time. There had to have been a time when people could detect it. That's now. That happens to be now. I like to listen to a man who is, a, who is an earthquake specialist. Been doing it for years. I heard him say about a month ago, he has never seen the rise in the level of the seismic charts the intensity of earthquakes in all the years he's been doing it like we're experiencing in these days, the consistency of the very major earthquakes around the world, a lot of them in the ocean, in places sparsely populated, some of them in places that are well populated, but they're there. Christ himself referred to it. But it's not just that. Paul talks about the final days, the latter days, when the world will experience a spirit of delusion unlike any other time in history. So that we are bombarded with anti-biblical declarations. It's just, it's just a world of, of anti-Bible born from a spirit of antichrist. We've, we've never seen it in the age of, of the internet. 
You hardly believe anything that you see or read. We keep experiencing things and we, we say, or we don't experience them, we read about them. And we were supposed to, we we're supposed to experience it, but we think to ourselves, this, this doesn't pass a litmus test to me. This doesn't, but it's declared as truth. We live in that age unlike any other age. And we were told in the Bible, these are the, this would be the latter days. Epidemics, disease, famine, wars, rumors of war. Things that affect us on every scale. The burden of Jerusalem. We're in the throes of problematic situations that exist this moment in Jerusalem. These things about Jerusalem will continue to be a heavier burden. The prophet says that in the Old Testament. It is a burden for the nations. And this this, this burden will literally rupture the nations. There's no solution and there will be no peace in Jerusalem until the Prince of Peace is enthroned in Jerusalem. That's why we are told in the Bible to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Because if we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, we're praying for our Christ to come again. There are economic problems that will lead to a global economic collapse that will require, in the mindset of the world, a political solution which will culminate in the mark of the beast. I heard your president... say within the last two weeks that if folks are not vaccinated it's going to become increasingly difficult for them to buy groceries to fill up their cars to get out and do things in crowds and they literally will have to stay at home I have no problem with Whoever takes a, a vaccination, that's not my business. I know that it's not the mark of the beast because that doesn't come until well into the tribulation and we're still here after all. But it sets people up to a mindset where people are being told, if you don't take a mark, and this is what the Bible says. You won't be able to buy or sell. You won't be able to live a normal life. You will be ostracized. And without groceries and without medical care and without the fellowship of others and being forbidden from doing this, that, going there and here, people will die. Now, that's the Bible. That's what the Bible says. So there's a mindset not only... That a government could say to people, you are required to take something physical or you won't have the life that you would otherwise have. It's not just the setting up of the mindset, 
but it also is in conjunction with corporations who are in these present days inserting microchips under the flesh of their employees. There's one company, I don't think it's in the United States, I think it's in one of the Scandinavian countries, but they require their employees to take this particular microchip or you can't work there anymore. The world's never seen anything like that before. Never. So, the Bible describes distress of nations with perplexity in the last days, where nations just can't figure out how to solve the problems because they're too great, they're too intertwined, and there's too much division among the people who are there. And it's very complex. And among those, among those problems are economic problems, health problems, political problems, the problem of Jerusalem, the problem of people accepting what governments would say. You have to take this. We're not going to let you have any other statements other than the statements that we approve. That is predicted in the Bible. We live in a day that's much like that. It's just setting the stage for the rapture of the church and the tribulation that will fall upon this world. Now, this is not a message about the second coming of Christ. This is a message of how precious Christ is to us. Because the same Christ that promises us eternal life and eternal salvation and paid for it by his own blood and by the offering of himself, his body on the cross. That same Christ who died to save me, thus fulfilling the obligation of the contract that the Father made with the Son before the foundation of the world that we are taught about in the, in the New Testament. The same Christ who died for us and accomplished what He accomplished for us in His first coming is coming again. The masses of the world will scoff at the promise of the second coming. They will think we are fools. Where, they will ask, is the promise of his coming? Where can I see it? Christ also said there would be false Christs. I saw a report with this guy. I don't know where he was from. He was dressed up in a suit and tie and he was in a big ballroom with a lot of people. And he was telling everybody he was Jesus. And a whole lot of people were flocking around him. That's just minorly compared to what's coming. And the way that people, if they don't understand their scriptures, will be duped into following a false Christ. All the way into the time when they will follow anti-Christ. The stage is set at unlike any other time in history. There's never been a time like this. It's a time for excitement. Just as surely as we 
rejoice that the Son of God would come into this world and do what was required to save us. The virgin-born Christ offering sinless blood for sinners. Defeating death and the grave and emerging victorious on the other side of the tomb promising to us the very same thing is ours. Telling us that regardless of how bad the world may seem, we are overcomers. Jesus Christ said, rejoice, for I have overcome the world. So as we consider what Christ did for us on the cross, we should also eagerly anticipate what Christ is about to do for his church. And I believe it with all of my heart. I'll close it like this. The recent events in and around Jerusalem in the nation of Israel connect us with things in the Bible that teach us about the burden of Jerusalem that nations would bear and would also teach us that at the final time, all of the nations of the world will come against Israel. Not a, not a single nation on earth at the last will stand with Israel. We're, we're nearly there, just about there. Jerusalem is already a burden to the nations of the world, but it does more than this. I've always believed and I've always taught all of my preaching ministry and I was able, when I was in Key West, I had this man to come and he's a Christian Jew, but he is a brilliant scholar and he taught us what the Passover means and we have Lord's Supper and how as Christians we experience what Christ did. We don't go to that depth every time we have the Lord's Supper. Name's... Zola Levitt, maybe you've heard of him. He's dead now. He used to have a TV show, Zola Levitt. Zola, that was the name of his TV show. Very popular Bible teacher. And I had the opportunity to sit down with him because he wrote a book several years ago based on Ezekiel 38 and 39. And of course, he grew up in the Hebrew language. And we discussed and I spoke with him about the book that he had written, which has which has set the eschatological persuasion of scholars since then because of the depth of the teaching of Zola. And in Ezekiel 38 and 39, the language is very clear that in the absolute end of days, Israel, and the assumption is made then in Ezekiel, even though Israel at that point in time had been removed from the family of nations on the earth back then, that a regathered Israel as a nation among nations would be according to what Deuteronomy uh, says, what is it, Deuteronomy 
32, verse 8 or something. Anyway, where it says that all the boundaries of the nations, everything that all the other nations are involved in, are centered upon how God deals with Israel. That's what he says in Deuteronomy. And so in speaking with Zola, he, would, he showed me some of the Hebrew text. And he says, there's no way to get around this. When this happens, this is the end of days. And in that prophecy, we did this in our retreat a couple of years ago, last year, whatever. The Ezekiel War, it's called. It's, it's very meticulous. It's very, very well-defined. That in the, in the end of the absolute end of days, after which there will be no more until the establishment of the kingdom, God would put hooks in the jaws of certain nations and he would draw them against Israel. God would do it. Put hooks in their jaws and draw them against Israel. The three major players in the ancient language and the ancient map was Magog, Meshach, and Tubal, which is Russia. Chief Prince, Rosh Ah. Combined and allied with Togarma, who is Turkey, and Persia, who is Iran. And then there would be smaller players along with them. And the prophets said they would ascend like a dark cloud over Israel and would bring this unprecedented attack against Israel and that God himself would stop it. The Bible describes in the King James language how five out of every six of the soldiers would die at the hand of God. It happens in a time when Israel is yet still in unbelief with regard to the Christ. And God says to Israel, I do not do this for your sakes. I do this for my holy name's sake that the world may know that I'm God. And then right after that, someone says in Ezekiel, it is Ezekiel who offers the, it's kind of a rhetorical question. Is this the time? And at that time, people will ask this question, the prophet says. Is this what the prophet spoke of so long ago? Iran, through proxies, is actively attacking Israel. Russia, and then some attacks have come from Syria, has warned Israel not to bomb Syria. There's Russia, there's Iran. Togarma, Turkey, has said to Hamas, we will do for you whatever we need to do in the destruction of Israel. Now, that alliance has never existed like that before. 
Zola Levitt is, well, he wouldn't be rolling over in his grave because he's in heaven. He's probably dancing around. I don't know. But he did such a wonderful and masterful job describing, I don't know how it's going to all going to come. To, I don't know how it's going to happen. It doesn't seem likely at this point in time, but this is what's going to happen because the word of God said it's going to happen. And it is a measure for earth dwellers to consider how close we are. I've always taught that because there is a seven year period mentioned that follows the Ezekiel war, a seven year period where Israel gathers the fallen instruments of war and takes them and uses them to burn them as fuel for seven years. My reasoning is that it has to be in close proximity then to the rapture of the church. I'm not a time setter, don't get me wrong. I, I have a lot of bias, though, and I try to see the coming of the Lord and everything that's happening because I want, it, I want him to come so bad. But there is a statement of truth from which one cannot escape, namely the events that will occur according to the word of God through the prophet himself at the very end of days, the Ezekiel War. So what is happening in the world today is just a step closer. It may be a giant leap closer. I don't know. But I know that it puts us that much closer to the coming of the Lord. Now, the question is this. Has what Christ did in his first coming been applied to your life by faith so that you can participate joyfully in his second coming? That's the question of the hour. So would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Jesus Christ is the son of God. He came into this world to save sinners. In just a moment, I'll ask everyone to stand in the act of standing. Today, if you would come to Christ and you want to do that publicly in here today, then you come and take me by the hand and just say, Pastor, I want to be saved. Maybe you're here, you're already a Christian. But you need to be obedient to Christ's command to be baptized and you want to follow the Lord in baptism. Come and share that with me. Maybe you're here and God is calling you into the fellowship of this church, into the membership of Shiloh. You come as well. Now, if you're reluctant to do that today in this room, but you have questions or something, we also have deacons and their wives right across the hall as you exit. And you can go in there and speak to them about any of these things that I've spoken about to you in this invitation today. But if the Lord compels you to come forward publicly today, you come. Father God in heaven, Lord, bless this invitation. Speak to our hearts as only you can do.
And we will thank you for it and glorify you in it. In Christ's name. Would our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Would you prayerfully stand all over the room? As he sings our song of invitation, you come now. Would you? You come.